Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in April in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark, so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now early on in the month, on the 2nd of April, Mars makes a close approach with Saturn, low down in the pre-dawn sky. Look towards the south at about 6am for your best chance to see them, when they are only about one degree apart. That's about the width of your little finger held out at arm's length. Now Mars with its deep orange-red colour and Saturn make fantastic objects to see with the naked eye or even a pair of binoculars. It's even possible to make out the white frozen polar regions of Mars and the grand rings of Saturn with a small telescope. For a planet appearing at a more civilised time of the night, try looking to the west with a setting sun to see the bright planet Venus which is visible throughout April. The moon begins this month in its waning gibbous phase, having just had a full moon on the last day of March. Appearing in the southeastern sky after midnight, the first week of April will have its start by the bright star Spica in the constellation of Virgo, passed by Jupiter which will be in the constellation of Libra, before approaching Mars and Saturn by the 7th and 8th. While Spica is in reality a double star system, the two stars take only four days to circle one another, making them far too close together to be separable by even the largest telescopes. The moon will reach its new moon phase on the 16th of April, but will still be mostly out of the way for the first of the two meteor showers that grace our skies this month. The Lyrid meteor shower will peak on the night of the 22nd and the early morning of the 23rd of April. And while its expected rate of about 20 meteors per hour in ideal conditions is far from the greatest, the favourable observing conditions and possibility of persistent trains behind some of the meteors actually make the Lyrids worth a watch. And while the radiant of the meteor shower lies in the constellation of Lyra, which is visible in the east, the meteors can actually be seen all over the sky. When watching meteor showers, try to find an open space with a low horizon and wait until the hours after midnight for your best chance to see them. Your local astronomy society may well be organising a meeting for the shower, so be sure to check. Just remember to keep warm, it's not summer just yet. While the Eta Aquarius meteor shower also begins to ramp up from the 19th of April, it won't actually peak until the first week of May. Now by the 21st of April, the moon will be passing through the constellation of Gemini. Look towards the west in the early evening before midnight. Here the moon passes by the bright stars Pollux and Castor, the twins. In Greek and Roman mythology, immortal Pollux shared his immortality with his mortal twin following Castor's death, leading them to taking their place in the stars as the constellation of Gemini that we see today. In reality, though, Pollux is actually an ageing orange giant star, slowly closing in on the end of its life, while Castor is in fact six different stars, three sets of close binaries all combining to make a single point of light. Through much of April, Mercury is too close to the Sun to be visible, having been directly between the Earth and the Sun on the 1st, 
a point known as the inferior conjunction of the planet. However, by the 29th of April, the planet will have reached its greatest western elongation, placing it as far from the Sun as it will get from our viewpoint. However, it will still only just peak above the eastern horizon before the Sun rises, drowning out our view. Finally this month, the Moon will reach its full Moon phase in the early hours of the 30th. It will rejoin Jupiter in the southeastern sky from around sunset on the 29th and remain visible throughout the night until it sets in the west just after the sun rises on the 30th. Now if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. And you may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, which is rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome to our Cosmic News part of our podcast, where Dara and I choose one astronomy story from the last month that we go into a bit more detail on um, and that we think has been particularly interesting. And then you get to decide which you think is the best by voting on our Twitter poll. So Dara, what have you come up with this month? Okay, so I've kind of gone back to something that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but scientists have found something new about it. So this month's story that I've chosen is all about the great red spot on Jupiter. It's getting taller. We know it's shrinking, but it's also getting redder as it does. And Juno, the space probe that's orbiting around Jupiter, has found lots of other new things all about Jupiter's stormy atmosphere. So I thought of uh, starting uh, with the kind of mythology behind it. Now, lots of people think that scientists might not have a sense of humour, but clearly they did when they thought up the name of this space probe. So according to Roman mythology, Jupiter was, you know, the king of the gods and Juno was actually the daughter of Saturn and became the wife of Jupiter. Um, Now, Jupiter's Galilean moons, the four closest moons that we can actually see through a relatively small telescope, they're all actually named after some of his lovers. So Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. So Jupiter wasn't the most virtuous of uh, men. (laughs) He had many affairs. And Juno, his wife, actually tried to peer under his shrouding clouds to try and uncover some of his secret kind of truths or whatever he was lying about. And so NASA named the space probe that was going to check out Jupiter after his wife. They called it Juno, (laughs) a Roman goddess uh, that did exactly the same. This Juno spacecraft was actually meant to peer under Jupiter's clouds, unveiling his secrets and hidden truths. So this space probe was originally launched back in August 2011. It took about five years to travel all the way to Jupiter and arrived on the 4th of July 2016. So quite a memorable date, uh, being Independence Day there in the States. Uh, And it's actually the second probe to orbit around Jupiter, uh, but it's got a slightly different orbit to its predecessor, um, the the Galileo space probe. So this uh, Juno space probe actually orbits in a polar orbit. So it's going from the North Pole to the South Pole to the North Pole to the South Pole. But at the same time, Jupiter is also spinning. So what you get is a complete coverage of Jupiter's surface. So the main uh, kind of reasons for this mission was to see how much water is in Jupiter's atmosphere. They wanted to look at the temperature, the composition and the cloud motions, as well as other properties about its atmosphere. They wanted to try and map the magnetic and gravity fields around this huge planet to try and uncover its structure in more detail. And they were also wanted to explore its magnetosphere. 
So this is the magnetic activity that also leads to aurorae, or the northern lights and the southern lights that we see here on the Earth. Similar things happen on Jupiter too. So all about trying to understand Jupiter better. And once we understand how Jupiter formed, lots of people think Jupiter was one of the first planets to form. It might actually give us a better idea into planetary formation in itself. So how are gas giant planets actually affected the, the formation of our solar system? So what did we already know about Jupiter? Well, we know it's mostly hydrogen and helium gas that make it up, but there's also small amounts of methane, ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and there is some water vapour at lower depths too, but not a lot. Not particularly useful though. Yeah, not, not where it is. We also know that Jupiter has bands across its planet. So if you've ever looked at Jupiter through a telescope, you can see that it has clear horizontal bands kind of going the same way uh, in the equatorial kind of direction. The light parts are actually called the zones and they're the colder parts. This is where gas from inside Jupiter is actually moving upwards. And as it does, it cools because it's away from the, the, the heated core. Um, and so ammonia ice forms. And ammonia ice, when it does form, it, it forms a very light colored region. The darker bits, though, the darker bands, they're called the belts. And instead, this is where gas is moving downwards. So as the gas moves downwards, or that ammonia ice moves downwards, it warms up. And so those ammonia ice clouds actually disappear, uh, and they actually appear darker. Now, we're not sure why they appear darker, but they're clearing out the way, and we're seeing at lower depths. We also believe that Jupiter had a very small but dense core, or perhaps no core at all. But again, we couldn't look through the thick clouds of Jupiter to actually know what its core or its structure was like. Uh, the Voyager probes back in the 70s actually did see auroras on Jupiter. And since we've put the Chandra X-ray telescope into space, we've actually seen they're stronger in X-rays. So we do know that they have aurora there on Jupiter. We've looked at the Great Red Spot for centuries. In fact, it was first recorded uh, in 1831. Well, that's the first confirmed sighting. Although lots of astronomers have said they've observed a Great Red Spot in the past, it may not be the same one that they're looking at. So it could have gone on for about 350 years, um, but definitely since 1831. Um, and we've seen that it's been shrinking. So we've known for a while that this Great Red Spot has been getting smaller and smaller. On Earth, we see very similar... Uh, kind of storm or hurricane-like features. The difference is that on the Earth, we have land. So when these hurricanes form and they go towards the land, they actually start dissipating. But Jupiter's great red spot hasn't because it's completely, entirely almost made of gas. Hmm. That's why these storms can actually last for centuries. So having known all that, since the Juno probe has arrived, we found out a bit more about it. So Juno has revealed that Jupiter doesn't have uh, a core as such. It's more of a fuzzy central region that they say is partially dissolved. So when we think of the Earth and it has distinct layers, so we've got the crust, the mantle, the core, Jupiter doesn't seem to have that. It just gets denser and denser, and there's a fuzzy boundary as to where the core might start. So that's a pretty interesting uh, scientific discovery to start off with. Yeah, absolutely. We also know that Jupiter being the largest planet would also have uh, one of the strongest magnetic fields as well. But actually, we found they are twice as strong as we previously thought. And again, scientists can't explain why for this reason uh, as of yet. The aurorae are actually even crazier. So there's some sort of uh, mysterious force that is making them much more powerful than they should be. So by our mathematics or our calculations, these aurorae should be 10 to 30 times more energetic than the ones we have here on Earth. Right. That's due to its magnetic field, due to uh, the particles that are interacting with its atmosphere. But actually, they are hundreds of times stronger and for no apparent reason. 
So something crazy is going on. And to top that off, it's north uh, or it's northern lights or it's southern lights actually turn off when the poles are orientated to the dark. So when the pole is facing away from the sun, those aurorae aren't seen. They're not there. Oh, that's interesting. And this is not the case for no, aurorae on Earth. No, in fact, the, mostly because it's, uh, you, you can't really see the faint lights of the aurora during the day the time to look for the aurora on Earth is at night. Is at night, exactly. Um, and the same would apply for Jupiter. If you were standing at the pole facing towards the, the sun, it would still be bright enough. I mean, Jupiter's further away from the sun that it would appear dimmer, and possibly you might be able to, see them. be able to see them. But yeah. uh, in the same sense, they're not actually appearing at all. Uh, so that's quite a mystery. To do with the Great Red Spot, though, we now know that it's only one and a half times the width of the Earth, but it penetrates 200 miles down into Jupiter's atmosphere. So this is an incredibly tall and uh, a lengthy storm. Mm-hmm. Previously, actually, in the early 2000s, we actually saw three little white spots beside that great red spot. And when they watched it, they actually saw that they merged and they formed into another red spot. And they called it the, the great red spot junior or right. uh, the tiny little red <laughs> spot. Um, so we've actually seen a red spot forming. And apparently they had formed from these three smaller white colored storms. Something worth watching. Uh, Juno also found that the great red spot has roots that are 50 to 100 times deeper than the oceans on Earth. So they're incredibly deep and they're actually warmer at the base than they are on top. So there's mm-hmm. some sort of heat at the bottom driving these storms. They also discovered that Juno uh, found that Jupiter has two new radiation bands. So a radiation band is a zone of kind of energetically charged particles that are trapped around the planet. So the Earth also has radiation bands. We call them the Van Allen belts. There's two, sometimes a third one kind of appears and disappears. But essentially charged particles traveling from the sun get trapped by the planet's magnetic uh, field uh, and they can't kind of dissipate off into space. But one of the radiation belts uh, found is just above the equator of uh, Jupiter, and it contains hydrogen, oxygen, and sulfur ions, and they're all moving uh, very quickly, close to the speed of light. And it was identified by uh, one of its detector instruments that the charged particles are actually thought to come from fast-moving neutral atoms that are created in gas around some of Jupiter's moons. So uh, those Galilean moons that I mentioned earlier on, Europa and Io, well, Europa has actually been seen to have vapor, of uh, a water vapor kind of being ejected from its surface, these geysers. They were first spotted in 2013, but uh, since then they haven't really been spotted, but they think it might be a cyclic process, so we're not just, we're, we haven't seen another round of them. Io is very different though. Io is one of the most volcanic places in our solar system. (laughs) And so it's got volcanic eruptions releasing lots of neutral sulfur dioxide gas. And all of this material, that gas, that water vapor, is rising above the atmospheres of these moons or the so-called atmospheres. It's going into space. And that neutral gas and that vapor is then irradiated by ultraviolet light from the sun. And so it creates ions. It strips away the electrons from those neutral gas atoms. So you've now got charged particles. Uh, And those charged particles are now accelerated by Jupiter's immense magnetic field. uh, And they're trapped in those radiation bands. And once uh, those radiation bands get full, 
we get aurorae, we get those charged particles interacting with the gases in the atmosphere. So this actually shows that the aurorae on Jupiter are not only caused by uh, solar particles, those charged particles from the sun, they're also caused by the gas being released from some of its moons, moons, which yeah. is incredible. Um, that was some of the things that Juno had discovered relatively uh, after it had arrived. But the newest discoveries that are the reason I chose it this month are a geometric cluster of cyclones over its poles. So if you've ever seen an image of Saturn, if you look at the North Pole, there's a hexagonal storm on its northern uh, kind of pole. Very strange. Very, very strange. It's really weird to find geometric shapes of storms. It's, It's more likely that you find circular ones. But not only has Jupiter got one of these geometric cyclones, it's actually got at the North Pole eight cyclones surrounding a middle one. So there's nine altogether. And at the Southern Pole, it's got one at the center, and then it's got uh, five cyclones surrounding that. So six in total at, the, at the, the Southern Pole. And each of these cyclones is thousands of kilometers wide. So we're talking about each cyclone being something the size of the US. And there are, there are lots of them. They've been observing them for at least seven months. So we know they've been going on for that long. And the migration of these cyclones towards the poles, that's kind of expected. So normally when we have a cyclone forming, you have a torque, which is a a force causing it to to move in a kind of twisting or circular motion. But if you don't have that force, those cyclones are then affected by the torque of the planet. So the planet's spinning. And so those cyclones end up moving to the axis of rotation of that planet. They move to the poles. So that's not unexpected. But it's unknown how these cyclones can exist without merging and how they can still retain their geometric shapes. So it's a huge discovery, but it's still to be explained. Now, the Great Red Spot, uh, they've been combining that with uh, not only observations, but data from Spacecraft 2. Um, and they found that, of course, it's been shrinking over the years, but they've also been found finding that it's getting taller. So as this sh- storm contracts the winds become stronger um i like to think of it a bit like an ice skater so if you've got an ice skater with their arms out and they start spinning and then they bring their arms closer in they start spinning a lot faster but instead of spinning faster the storm is actually stretching upwards it's being pulled upwards and this is a bit like if you ever do pottery or kind of clay work on a clay wheel and you kind of drive your hands into the clay it pushes that clay upwards like you're building a vase of some sort So they've actually seen that the storm, the Great Red Spot, it's been getting taller, but it's a relatively small change compared to its area. So we know that the area of the Great Red Spot was about three times the size of the Earth. It's now one and a half, but it is still getting taller nonetheless. They've also seen that it's been getting redder in color too, and intensely orange since 2014. Uh, And they think it's due to the ammonium hydrosulfide in Jupiter's atmosphere. They think that as it's exposed to some of the UV radiation from the sun, the ultraviolet radiation, it's getting deeper in colour. But how is this? Well, the ammonia hydrosulfide is uh, a salt. It decomposes quite quickly on the Earth. um, But at the temperatures we have on the Earth, that's why it's not stable. But on Jupiter, it can be. Um, And normally, that ammonia hydrosulfide salt is a transparent and colourless object. So we can't normally... Uh, see it but uh, that's when it's on its own but on Jupiter that salt isn't on its own it's exposed to cosmic rays and I talked about cosmic rays actually in our last month in our news story that I did 
Cosmic rays are just very high energy particles moving close to the speed of light, um, usually atomic nuclei, so things like uh, a proton or uh, the nucleus of a helium atom. So what they did was they bombarded uh, their samples of ammonia hydrosulfide salts that they built in the lab with uh, protons moving close to the speed of light. So they used a particle accelerator to do this and accelerated those protons to mimic cosmic rays. And they also varied the temperature. And what they found was that lower temperatures, so minus 263 degrees Celsius, it actually gave rise to a ready orange color. But when they ramped up the temperatures a bit, so we're still talking very cold, uh, to minus 153 degrees, it actually turned more of a green color. And I think this is actually due to uh, the sulfur components in that salt. Okay, so what they found was that Actually, the temperatures on Jupiter's clouds actually match the slightly uh, warmer temperatures, so minus 153. So we'd expect a green color rather than a red one. But they are trying to investigate with lots of different temperatures. They are also investigating lots of different wavelengths because it's not just visible light that we're looking at. These samples will also emit light in the infrared, in the ultraviolet, and they'll all give a different indication as to whether they match what we're seeing on Jupiter. So they're going to try with different samples, but that one is the one they seem to think is the reason for the reddening color. They've still got to confirm it, but all we know is that as the clouds of this great red spot are lifted higher into the atmosphere, they're turning redder. Um, and last little bit about this is actually looking in the infrared. So they've looked at the great red spot with infrared light, and they found that it is much brighter than the rest of the planet. So these great red spots that they're seeing are actually very, very hot, and they're emitting more heat than their surrounding parts. So why are the great red spots actually forming? Well, when we look at Jupiter, the poles are actually cooling down and the equator is getting hotter. So they think that the great red spots and other red spots like it are forming to get rid of heat from the inside. Mm. So as the equator gets hotter or the equatorial regions do, the great red spots and other red spots are forming around this region to, to get rid of some of that heat from its inside. So if this great red spot does disappear, uh, I'm sure we're going to see another one forming to help cool Jupiter down. But there are a whole host of different things that Juno has discovered. I'm quite impressed, actually, by the Aurora discovery and the idea that yes. they're not just formed from uh, the solar wind. Uh, and there's lots more to discover, too, the idea about why we only see the Aurora when they're facing towards the sun. So yeah. that's my story for this month. Some of the extraordinary uh, discoveries that Juno has made, and I'm sure there are loads more to come. So, Greg, what have you found for this month? Well, not to make it sound too dramatic, but this month I have a, a zombie star which has come to life. So a dead star that has, that has come to life again? Pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of. So, I knew uh, there yeah, was. I knew there was a little... It's not quite right, but it's, it's, it sounds good. So um, stars typically aren't solitary so uh, our sun is fairly unusual in that regard that it's on its own it's the only sun in our solar system and that's actually probably a good thing when you've got multiple stars in a system uh, it's more likely to throw planets out of the system and all sorts of other weird things so it's probably a good thing that we're on our own 
Uh, but most stars are in binary or trinary or even higher sets of systems, so two, three, four or more stars altogether. Uh, things can get very, very complicated. Uh, we've already heard today about Castor, uh, a star that we talked about in the Cosmic Diary, which is actually three binary stars all flying around one another at various distances from their, from their centre point. Um, a very, very complicated system. So what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about simple binaries. So just two stars um, and relatively close together ones as well. So the thing about binary star systems is that these stars are likely born at the same time. So they're born in the same cloud of gas. Uh, they form at almost exactly the same time, at least from an astronomical time scale. And that means that at any point in their lives, they are the same age. And that's right. useful. Uh, we'll come back to why in a, in a little while. Um, but the thing is, stars don't have to live for the same length of time. So they may be the same age, but that doesn't mean that they're at the same point in their life cycle. Um, very big stars burn through their fuel very, very fast. They're much, much hotter than smaller stars. And so they die very quickly. Tens of millions of years, maybe 100 million years, something along those sort of lines. Um, which sounds like a lot. Um, but when you compare that with small stars like our own sun um, that can last 10 billion years, so at least a thousand times longer, uh, you can see that there's quite a big difference between them. So this is like animals in the animal kingdom. You know, the average lifespan of a human, I'm going to say, is about 80 years. Yeah. Uh, and something like, a, you know, a sea turtle or say, sea tortoise <laughs> could live for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But relatively speaking we have our younger life our adult life and the end of our life yes. it's just different lengths of time absolutely yes big stars about eight times the mass of our sun or bigger um, they die in a sort of explosive supernovae the star explodes outwards and what you're left behind with typically for the lower end of eight times the mass of the sun and above uh, you get something called a neutron star a neutron star is something about the mass of the sun, maybe the mass and a half, something along those lines. Um, but it's all crammed into something about 10, 20 kilometers across. So it fit within the M25. Um, so a very, very, very compact, exceptionally dense object. And these stars, well, they're not really stars anymore. They're dead. <laughs> okay. um, they, are, they don't produce any more energy of their own. All they're doing is they're letting off the heat that they produced during their life. And that can take trillions of years because cool, cooling down in space is actually very, very difficult to do. Sounds a bit of a weird thing, but it's actually very difficult to cool down in space. It's one of the biggest problems that um, satellites and probes have is cooling down, not heating up, as you might think. It's very strange. On the other hand, a very small star, or a smaller star at least, can live for a much, much longer time. So long after the first star has exploded, the second star in this binary can still be around, assuming it survives the supernova. I was just going to say. <laughs> typically does, but probably not entirely unscathed, sure. seeing as its uh, massive 10 million year old companion has just exploded on it there's a chance that it'll, it will be a little bit damaged. But still, the, the star itself will it mostly be intact. Absolutely. So we're left with a compact neutron star and a larger sort of middle-aged star, still relatively young, uh, flying around one another. The other star, so the star which is still sort of middle-aged, it remains a main sequence star. So a star that's during the main part of its lifetime, um, which for a sun-like sun star sorry, lasts about 10 billion years. Um, and the neutron star just sort of waits. 
because there isn't really anything going on and the neutrons start anymore. That changes when the sun-like star begins to reach the end of its life. It will puff itself out into something called a red giant. So it will expand outwards. The centre of the star gets quite a bit hotter, which puffs out its outer layers. And the outer layers of a red giant are made of sort of weakly bound material. What I mean by that is that the force of gravity at the outer edge of the star um, is fairly weak compared with when the star was more compact, like our sun. So during most of its life, it's fairly compact. It's able to hold on to its outer layers fairly easily. But when it expands outwards, the gravity at the edge is much weaker. So it loses hold of its outer layers. Exactly. So it means it's far easier to strip the outer layers off. And if the the neutron star is close enough, that's precisely what happens. The neutron star literally just tears material off. That cheeky neutron star. star. Absolutely. But if the stars are separated enough, then that never happens. So if they have orbits of about a few hundred days, something along those lines, um, so it takes a few hundred days for them to orbit around one another, then typically that won't happen. What will instead happen is red giants produce quite strong um, stellar winds. So stellar winds um, are material being blown off from the surface of the star. Um, Our own sun has a solar wind, but it's relatively weak. Um, thankfully, because otherwise it would strip our atmosphere off of the Earth and we wouldn't be able to live here. For red giants, it's considerably stronger. And it starts a certain time after they have turned into a red giant. It gets particularly strong a certain time after. So whether the neutron star pulls material off of this, other, of this red giant or the red giant just sort of passively throws material off itself, um, that material still ends up on the neutron star. And so roughly a similar thing happens in both cases. The material falls onto the neutron star, it heats up through a very, very complicated process, which I'm not going to go into. Um, But when stuff heats up in space, it emits light, and a lot of it usually. So in this particular case, the temperature of the material that falls onto it is extremely high. So rather than producing lots of light that our eyes can see, it does produce a lot of visible light, um, but most of the light is actually in the form of X-rays, a much higher energy type of light. Um, And this is detectable almost exclusively by observatories in orbit around the Earth. And that's simply because our atmosphere, thankfully, again, blocks X-ray light. If it didn't, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, I think we've got a lot to thank our Earth's atmosphere for. There are a lot of things which go well for us on the Earth. One such observatory, the International Gamma Ray Astrophysics Laboratory, or INTEGRAL, another triumph for astronomical acronyms, has detected a flash of these X-rays, which it's called IGR, which stands for integral, J17329-2731, which just tells the astronomers where it happened in the sky. It's just the coordinates in the sky. And these X-rays have come from a previously quiet system, so a system that was not producing X-rays before. So we had a red giant, we have a neutron star, they weren't doing anything, And then suddenly, boom, you get X-rays coming from them. This suggests that the neutron star only just started receiving this strong stellar wind from the dying red giant star. And it's very rare to have watched the beginning of this process. There are stars out there, there are binary systems out there that we've seen this ongoing, but typically we haven't seen them start up. 
So this is good. Uh, it means we can watch it from the beginning, beginning through, which is nice. Although it's probably going to last a lot longer than any researcher is going to, to be around for. But still... <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be able to get some useful data from it. It's quite ironic how you've got a dying star, which then leads to another star almost coming back to life. Yeah, absolutely. So the, 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 the beginning of the death of the, um, the still-living star reignites briefly, at least for, for on astronomical timescales, the dead star, yes. Uh, so that's why it's sometimes referred to as a zombie star. A star coming back to life. Just to clarify, though, we wouldn't necessarily call it a star anymore. Correct. So, I mean, we call it a neutron star, but by the typical definition of what a star is, they're not stars. Right. They are not producing energy in their cores through something called nuclear fusion. Um, and to be clear, this star, this neutron star, which has been started up again, it hasn't really been started up again. There is no fusion going on. It's just material flying into the neutron star, giving heating up and giving out energy that way. It's a very different process uh, to, uh, to nuclear fusion and so doesn't produce energy in the same way. So these X-ray binaries, in this particular case, it's called a symbiotic X-ray binary. Um, so these are very important for a number of different reasons. By looking at these two stars that were born at the same time, but had very different masses, so they evolved at very different speeds, um, we can study the evolution of stars. We know that they're both the same age. We don't necessarily know exactly how old that is, but we can probably work it out. But we do know that at this particular age, these two stars with this particular mass, because we can work that out because they're orbiting one another, and we can, from that we can work out how heavy they are, we therefore know what stage of their evolution they reach in the age that they currently are. So that's useful. Next, of course, we can study stellar winds, how they vary from star to star, and maybe how they originate in each type of star, because the process is not always the same from one star to the next. Different types of stars will produce stellar winds in different ways. Finally, another thing that they can do is that they can study magnetic fields in space. So neutron stars often have exceptionally strong magnetic fields, but typically only when they're young. Or at least that's what we thought. Thing is, this particular neutron star appears to have a very strong magnetic field, which is a bit of a mystery to the astronomers that discovered it, because... I already said that the neutron star formed very, very early on in, the, in this system's life. Uh, its star died off 10 million, 100 million years after the star, the original star So it's just been hanging born. around. So it's been hanging around for the best part of 10 billion years. It is definitely not a young neutron star anymore. So why does it still have a very strong magnetic field? Well, one possibility is that magnetic fields don't actually decay with time as we thought they did. So young, magnet, uh, young uh, neutron stars and old neutron stars can have magnetic fields, or they cannot. It's not that they change from time to time, necessarily. Or there's another possibility, which is that what I originally said, that this neutron star formed from a supernova of a massive star, isn't true. It's also possible that it was a slightly more massive star than its companion, that it went through the same phases that this red giant star is currently going through, turned into what's called a white dwarf, which is another compact dead star, but it's about the size of the Earth this time, 
and then started stripping material off of the other uh, star and eventually collapsed into the neutron star. That process would take a lot longer, oh. meaning that the new neutron star would be young, and so it would have a very strong magnetic field. So a different evolutionary path, exactly. but turning into a neutron star yes. nonetheless. and a far more violent one than the one we think is, <laughs> has actually yeah, happened. Yeah, it didn't sound nice, did it? No, but unfortunately we don't know. As we only have 10 examples of these stellar wind-powered zombie stars, we've really just begun to scratch the surface of these objects. So until we have more of them, or perhaps this one, might be able to answer some of the questions that we have about them. Uh, astronomy always leads us with more questions to answer, doesn't it? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, those are our two stories for this month. We hope you enjoyed them, and we want you to vote for your favourite on our Twitter poll. So if you go onto Twitter, our handle is at ROGAstronomers, and our Twitter poll will be up in the first week of April. Now, the results of last month's polls, well, we had two uh, other news stories. Altogether, we had nine votes. So 44% voted for the interstellar asteroid and 56 for the rogue exoplanet. So, Greg, you've clinched it by one vote yet again. <laughs> so next month, we want, we want a lot more votes. Now, uh, next month's podcast will be up on SoundCloud at the start of May. You can also check out our other podcasts on SoundCloud too. We've got interviews with researchers, astronauts and real space scientists too. Also, uh, we'll soon be uploading our podcasts onto iTunes, so you'll be able to listen to them on there. But that's all for this month. We hope you've enjoyed Look Up and we'll see you all again next month. Mm -hmm.